الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى قال تبارك وتعالى إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على سيدنا ونبينا وحبيبنا وحبيب ربنا وطبيبنا ومولانا محمد عبد الله ورس respected Qadi sahab, respected ulama ikiram, respected mu'adhi, respected brothers and sisters in Islam, sisters who are listening. This is perhaps the only masjid, AZN, where you are given a topic before you can come here. And mashallah, our brother Imran Bobat, he likes to give such intricate topics sometimes that you need a navigation system to navigate also. Mashallah, brother Imran. So alhamdulillah, we have been given a topic regarding Syria, its history, recent and past the current, what is happening there, and more it's a report back, more than anything else, of our recent trip to Syria and our recent trip the last 10 years to this Mubarak land of Sham. Now generally when we think of Syria or we think of the word Sham, Sham is the Arabic word for Syria. But today if we look at modern day Syria, modern day Syria is a carved out territory which is incorporated into our understanding of Sham. But it's not limited to Sham that we understand in our deen. Sham includes Palestine, Sham includes Jordan, Sham includes parts of Lebanon, parts of southern Turkey and parts of other areas in the Middle East as well. All that land is considered Sham. Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he gave glad tidings to Sham and the people of Sham. Tuba li Sham, Tuba li Sham, Tuba li Sham. Three times, glad tidings to Sham. So the Sahaba asked, Ya Rasulullah, why are you giving these glad tidings to Sham? Let's call it Syria. So the Prophet said, because the angels of, of Allah spread their wings over Sham. The angels of Allah spread their wings over Sham. And in times of turmoil and corruption, the place to escape to is the land of Sham. Here there will be safety in the land of Sham. Despite the political upheaval that we are seeing there. Now many of us, have been accustomed to hearing about Syria. Some of us have little interests. Some of us have greater interests, perhaps, as to what is happening in Syria. But how much do we actually know regarding the geopolitics in the area, the dynamics in the area, the upheaval in the area, the instability in the area, the plight of the Muslim Ummah in this particular country called Syria. Now this country, Syria, it was carved out post-World War II by the imperial powers. And all the Muslim nations that were all at that time in, in existence in this region 
all fell under the Uthmani Khilafat or the Ottoman Empire as we understand. With the seat of governance in Istanbul, Constantinople as it was called in previous times, this all fell under the Uthmani Khilafat. And if we are aware of world history, we understand that Turkey was called the sick man of Europe and there was a deliberate attempt to bring down the Khilafat, the institution of Khilafat. While there were many other powers in different parts of the world, in Africa, they were also in, Ind- in the Indo-Pak, there was the Mughal Empire. But this empire is so important to us because we considered it like the Khilafat of the Muslim Ummah with its base and seat in Istanbul. And this is the government or this is the empire that reigned over our most important areas. And that is the Haramain al-Sharifain and Masjid al-Aqsa al-Mubarak. So these areas fell under the domain and the control of the Ottoman Empire or the Uthmani Khilafat as we should rather call it. So how many of us are aware of the date when the Uthmani Khilafat or the Khilafat terminated forever? And that is the sad day of the 3rd of March 1924 when the institution of Khilafat terminated. And from 1924 till today, 98 years have passed over the Muslim Ummah that we do not have a Khalifa or an Amirul Mu'mineen or a leader of the Muslim, a part of the Christians at least. They have some sort of a leader, global leader, who sits in the Vatican City, who's based in the Vatican City. But we, the Muslim Ummah, we have no united or unified leader. The Prophet ﷺ, he was buried with delay. Despite the fact that it was his teaching that there should be no delay in the burial of a person. Obviously, the Prophet ﷺ wasn't an ordinary person. He was the Nabi of Allah. He was the Rasul of Allah and the final one as well. And the Sahaba, for the first time in their lives, they experienced, and never to experience again, the death of a Nabi. So how do you go about the burial, the kafan, the dafan, and the burial of a Nabi? So obviously there was confusion. But most than that, the more important thing was the appointment of a Khalifa over this Ummah. The importance of a Khalifa cannot be overestimated. The hand of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala figuratively, the assistance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is with the Khalifa. Khalifatullah fil Yadullah. The hand of Allah figuratively is with the Khalifa on earth. So Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, radiyallahu ta'ala anhu, he was questioned that there was a delay in the burial of the Prophet yet it was his teaching that there should be no delay in the burial of a janazah when it's ready. What was the profound answer that he gave? He said that the appointment of a Khalifa, the appointment of an Amirul Mu'mineen, took precedence over the burial of a Nabi. This is the importance of an Amirul Mu'mineen, a Khalifa, something that we are lacking and something that we may not see for the rest of our lives most probably. When the Khilafat fell in 1924, with the fall of the Uthmani Khilafat, there was a group of, of leaders, of ulama, from Darul Ulum Deoband, that traveled all the way, a jama'at traveled all the way, to Istanbul. And there they approached this evil person by the name of Mustafa Kamal Atartu, who was instrumental in bringing the Khilafat down. And he had no interest in the Khilafat. He was an enemy of Islam. But they went up to him that do not let the institution of Khilafat fall. We know he had no interest in it. But the institution fell. 98 years has passed. In two years will be a century without the Muslim having... When the Khilafat was fall, our businessmen, in particularly in KZN, Many of them sent funds 
to help the economy of the Uthmani Khilafat, to prop up the Uthmani Khilafat so that the institution of Khilafat does not. So this is just some very brief history. Coming to the land, Ardu Sham. What are the virtues? Land. There are so many virtues. There are 40 ahadith compiled only on the virtues of Sham. As I mentioned at the beginning, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Tuba li Sham, Tuba li Sham. Allahumma barik lana fi Yamanina wa fi Shamina. Oh Allah, give barakah in, in our land of Yemen, in our land of Sham. He made special dua for the land of Sham. And just to discuss in this very limited time, how much can we discuss? So just to condense some of the virtues of the land of Sham, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, we discussed that he gave glad tidings to the land of Sham. And this land of Sham, it was the capital of the Islamic empire post-Islam for over a hundred years when Sayyidina Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan radiyallahu ta'ala anhumah established his governance in Damascus and it reigned for approximately a century. It had the seat of Islamic governance. Then many, many eminent sahaba kiram when they saw fitna after the demise of the Prophet sallallahu and in subsequent years, many of them migrated to Sham to seek the safety of the land of Sham. And among the many, many Sahaba, 10,000 Sahaba, 10,000 Sahaba who saw the Prophet Sallallahu they set foot on the land of Sham and they visited the land of Sham. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the only land that he traveled out of the Arabian Peninsula was the land of Sham. When he went on business on behalf of his Honorable wife Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha, he went to trade in the land of Sham. And Nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam led all the Anbiya alayhim salatu wasalam in Aqsa al-Mubarak and the time of the Mi'raj. He went into the land of Sham. We know that the greatest sahaba kiram after the Khulafai Rashidi, the Ashara Mubashara are the Ashabul Badr. These are very special sahaba, the Ashabul Badr or the Badriyeen. In fact, when we make dua, it is a practice of many, many of our akabirin when they earnestly want a dua to be accepted that they will recite all the 313 names of the Sahaba of Badr and then they will make dua. It is also the practice in our madaris as Mufti Sahib and Qari Sahib will allude to that in our madaris that when Sahih Bukhari is being taught and when we come to the chapter of the Ashab of Badr and all the 313 names of the Ashab of Badr are mentioned radiyallahu anhu radiyallahu anhu radiyallahu anhu would the Amir would the leader Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then dua is made after reciting all those names with this anticipation and hope that through their barakah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will accept our duas so 100 Sahaba of Badr set foot on the land of 100 Sahaba of Badr set foot on the land of Sham. Then besides that, they are great. among the Sahaba famous who are buried in the land of Sham, Bilal bin Rabaha, radiyallahu ta'ala an, Mu'addinu Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Sayfullah Khalid, Khalid ibn Walid radiyallahu ta'ala an, he is also buried there. Katibul Wahi, the scribe of Wahi, Mu'awiyah bin Abi Sufyan radiyallahu ta'ala anhumma, he's also buried in the land of Sham. And many, many other Sahaba are buried on this Mubarak and Muqaddas land. Many, many awliya'i kiram, many, many great scholars of our deen, great mufassirun, muhaddithun, they are also buried, are buried in the land of Sham. Then, this is the place of the descent of Nabi Isa alayhi salatu wasalam. Isa alayhi salatu wasalam will descend on his return 
and Isa alayhi salatu wasalam who will not come back as a Nabi. He will come back as a Ummati of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he will descend in the land of Sham. And he will be primarily engaged in the land of Sham. And he will come with this one object and that is to slay Dajjal, Masih Dajjal. And Isa alayhi salatu wasalam will accomplish his goal inshallah. Abdullah, he was that the Euphrates River, the Ifrat as it's called in Arabic. The four rivers of Jannah in this world. There are four waters of Jannah in this world. Two of them exist in the land of Shah. This water on earth is the water of Zamzam in Makkatul Mukarramah. It's a water of Jannah. The second water of Jannah is the Nile or the Nile where Musa alayhi salatu wasalam was placed in, which runs through different countries in, in Africa. So the river Nile, it's a water of Jannah. It goes through the land of Sham. The Ifrat and the Tigris, the Euphrates. Alhamdulillah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed us with the opportunity of being at the banks of the river Euphrates and seeing this water. So he was informed, Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu ta'ala an, that the water is diminishing in the Euphrates river. Ifrat river is diminishing there. What was his reply? He says that it's not of concern. Why? Because the Ifrat water and believers be in the land of Sham. They will always be found in the land of Sham. These two blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are just some of the history of the land of Sham. Now coming to, as our brother Imran wants us to navigate different subjects at the time of Jumu'ah, coming to uh, modern day, modern day history of Syria. Now we have been hearing for a decade about Syria and these collections made for Syria. And some of us have little interest. Some of us have a lot of interest. Some of us have seen it firsthand. Some of us have experienced it firsthand to see what devastation is what civil war is. So this country, Syria, it was formed in this, on the 17th of April, 1946, post-World War II, carved out in the British Parliament by British parliamentarians who divided the whole Muslim Ummah into nation-states, made us proud of a country, made us proud of a flag, made us proud of a soccer team, made us proud of our nationalism, and they destroyed the Ummah within us. So this country had at the time of the civil war, the beginning of the civil war in March 2011, there were approximately 20 million people in this very blessed land of Syria. Here, in 1963, there was political ups and downs from 1946 to 1963. In 1963, the Ba'athist the Socialist Party, a secular party, predominantly atheistic, they came into power and they are holding power. The Assad father and son they are holding power from 1963 till today. Now to, to make you understand why there was a need for an Arab uprising or a civil war, it was in February 1982. And how many of us are aware of this massacre, this genocide, which no Arab nation did against its own people? Hafez al-Assad, we can't even call him Hafez al-Assad. Hafez al-Fasad, he is known as the Hafez of corruption, chaos. Hafez al-Assad, he butchered thousand men, women and children, innocent men, women and children, predominantly, these are all Sunni Muslims and predominantly in the Hama area. And not only that, he took them onto soccer fields, onto sports fields, and from the top they were massacred till the sports grounds flowed with the blood of Sunni Muslims. 30,000 people, not very long ago, in 1982 this happened. So we can understand the suppression and the oppression in this beautiful land of Syria. And then in March, as the Arab Spring took wind, we started off in Tunisia. This is very recent history of in Tunisia with the removal of the government of Tunisia. And it spread to other Muslim countries. Egypt, alhamdulillah, but outcome in the land of Egypt. 
which then a democratic process took place. Their system, which is palatable and acceptable to them, a democratic election took place. And Muhammad Hafid, Muhammad Al-Mursi, Rahmatullah Alayhi, was elected the president of Egypt in a democratic election. But that even wasn't acceptable to them. And finally, we know that Muhammad Al-Mursi, there was a coup, there was a planned coup against him by the current president of, of Egypt, General Sisi. And he was deposed, imprisoned, not given a fair trial, and given life imprisonment, tortured in prison. Finally, Hafiz Mursi, Rahimahullah, may Allah fill his qabr in prison. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is aware. He may have passed away in this condition, in such infamy, but Allah is aware of, this, of his condition. So it moved, it moved into the land of Syria. And here it was young people, young men, teenagers, who uprose Bashar al-Assad to remove them from the people of Syria. And it was very, very heavily clamped down on. And he murdered those young men. And we have seen pictures of some of these young men, their remains. All they could be identified was with by their fingers. Nothing remained. They were butchered and they were mercilessly mutilated. All that they could be recognized by their family was by their fingers. And this is the, the suppression. And then the civil war broke out throughout the land of Syria, in Damascus, and predominantly in the Sunni areas like Hama, Halab. Halab is Aleppo, which is a hundred kilometers from Turkey. And there was an uprising and re trying to remove this government. It was, the tide was in favor of the Mujahid. The tide was in favor of the people who were trying to remove the yoke of oppression. And unfortunately, whatever is the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there was foreign assistance that came in at that time into Syria. Bashar al-Assad was given assistance by the, by the Iranian army, the Shia Iranian army, and by the Russian army. The Russians only have one naval base in the entire Middle East, and that naval base is in Syria. So it was strategic for them, and the land of Syria is highly strategic. It's a gateway to many things. It holds pipelines to many things. Many things are transported through, and the tide turned against the Mujahideen, and this is the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A Muslim never undergoes defeat. If he wins the war, he's a winner, and if he loses the war, he's still a winner. Because he's fighting for the sake of Allah. He's trying to liberate for the sake of Allah. He's trying to liberate to establish the deen of Allah. So everywhere, if he passes away, he's a winner. If he survives, he's a winner. So nonetheless, this has been going on from March 2011 today. And just to make you understand the statistics, 11 million people of the 20 million people of Syria, they are in need of humanitarian aid and most of them cannot read. Most of them cannot access humanitarian aid. In the, in, from 2011 till today, 600,000 people have lost. Since World War II, such a large number of people haven't lost their lives in this kind of civil conflict. So 600,000 people have lost their lives and most of them Sunni Muslims. You may, you may be saying that I'm emphasizing the word Sunni Muslims. 6.1 million, these are the latest figures from the United Nations. 6.1 million people are internally displaced in Syria. Internally displaced persons. 5.6 million people are living out of Syria as a refuge. Of the 5.6 million people, 3.6 million people live in Turkey, predominantly in southern Turkey. Turkey shares a very long border with the Syria. There's a 900-kilometer border. So more, three people have crossed the border and they live primarily in southern in some, We have visited, alhamdulillah, most of these towns and some of these cities and towns. The Syrian population even overtaken the local Turkish many, many towns. Two, two million people are spread across the world, other parts of the world, whether it's Lebanon, 
whether it's Jordan, whether it's Saudi Arabia, many refugees in Saudi Arabia as well. So this is the sad plight of the Muslim Ummah in that part of the world. Now coming to our relief efforts, Alhamdulillah, the Jamiatul Ulama KwaZulu Natal has been involved in many countries in the last decades. And one of those countries is the land of Syria. Alhamdulillah, much aid has been dispensed on behalf of the Muslim community. And many people there, many refugees there, have repeatedly people of South Africa and expressed their gratitude also for the help that has been coming for so, so long a period. Not only South African Muslims are working there as NGOs, but there are many, many people across the world, NGOs that are working, are working, Muslim and non-Muslim, who are working to uplift the people of Syria and assist them in some way or the other. Coming to the aid that we have dispensed along these years, primarily food aid, food is survival, so food aid has been the major donation. Then cosmetics, toiletries, female needs, clothing, fans, orphanage support. There are many, many orphanages across Syria and even in Turkey. So many orphans. 85% of refugees are generally women and children. So, so many widows, so many young women and so many orphans. Then we have extended rental support. Many of them live as refugees in Turkey. They live in meager structures like an outbuilding or a garage or sometimes it's very dilapidated conditions but they have to pay rental to survive. So Alhamdulillah, rental assistance has been given to them. And then medical needs, prosthetics, other medical needs, medicines, various other types of, of aid. One very important aid that only we South African Muslims have been extending is appliances. Alhamdulillah, we were in a city called Shandi Urfa, and it was about proxy war. And we realized the intense heat. And when we visit homes, home to home, and we visit homes, food cannot be stored. It goes off because there's no refrigeration. So Alhamdulillah, along these years, we have annually provided fridge and freezers for them as well. And many of these pictures will be uploaded onto the website of the Jamiat, where it can be viewed as well, these appliances. And Alhamdulillah, these fridge and freezers are not only given to the refugees, but they are delivered to their homes as well at the cost of the Muslim organizations. So these are some of the, some of the kinds of assistance being extended. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept efforts we are making to uplift the ummah. We are one ummah. Inna hadihi ummatukum ummata wahida. Innam al-mu'minuna ikhwa. Of the Quran Sharif, we hear them quite often. We understand what it means that we are one brotherhood. The Muslims are one brotherhood. The Prophet sallallahu said, al-muslimuna ka rajulin wahid. That the Muslims are like one person, like one body. If the, if the head is in discomfort, then the whole body feels a discomfort. If the eye is in discomfort, the whole body feels a discomfort. So we are one ummah. If one part of the ummah is going through such turmoil, such suffering, and it's not restricted to Syria, but let us go across the globe and how long this is carrying on. Many of us have grown up, have been born in an era where Muslims have been at the receiving end. Say a student of history, he decides to study history and it's the year, we are in the year 2022. It's the year 2122. It's the year 2122 when none of us will be alive. None of us will be above the earth. We will all be below the earth. And a student of history is studying the last century of Muslims. What will he deduce? What will he ascertain? What will he summarize? That where were the Muslims? Where was the Ummah? Was the Ummah alive or was the Ummah dead? Were there any Muslims on earth? How many Muslims are there? 
on earth. Two billion or more Muslims on earth. How many Jews are there in the world today? There are approximately 15 million. 15 million, 0.2% of the earth. But there are 2 billion Muslims. So where are the Muslims? In, in Bosnia, in Europe, in very civilized Europe, in Bosnia, not far along, not far ago, in 1995, when thousands of Muslims were butchered, were raped, where was the Muslim Ummah? In Palestine. Palestine hasn't been defeated from 1947 with the formation, 1948 with the formation of Israel. Long before that, in 1917, the British took over Palestine. Then we know prior to that, the Belgians. So where was the Ummah with so many Muslim nation states, with all our arsenal, with all our might, all our military strength, all our financial strength, where was the Muslim Ummah there to help the Muslims? So there are lessons for us to draw. And one of the most important lessons that we can conclude today is that we as South African living as a minority in this country and having gone through so much in the last few years, very recently, in the last three to five years, we have been through the COVID issue. Then we have been through looting last year, July, which has affected all of us in some way or the other. And then we went through flooding in KwaZulu-Natal on two separate occasions. It's important that we sit back, we reflect, and we ponder that where we are as a Muslim community, minority in this country, in this secular country, in this non-Muslim country, and how we can entrench our deen and Islam. It's not budgets. It's if we think by building beautiful massages, we then go to Kurtuba, go to Andalus, go to Muslim Spain, Go and study the glorious history of Islam in Spain. Just one part of Spain, Kurtuba, where the famous Imam Kurtubi comes from, hails from. It had 600 masajis and institutions of learning. And our masajis are incomparable to that architecture and that craftsmanship and that superb engineering. Incomparable to it. Go and see today the Alhamra in Spain, which has Allahu Akbar at its pinnacle. La ghaliba illallah. And see, there's a crucifix fixed on la ghaliba. So if we think that we are very, very rosy and cozy in this country, and we've done great wonders establishing so many massages across, the, across this country, let us not forget the history of nations of the past. When destruction comes, it takes everything in its. If we really want to establish ourselves in this country, change our way, that we are here to serve the deen of Allah. We are here to propagate the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We are here long enough in this country. We haven't made a dent on the non-Muslim indigenous population. Why are they not Muslim? Are we not in the Western Cape for over three and a half? Are we not in KwaZulu-Natal, in Khautin and other areas for over one and a half centuries? And, yes, and yet we are so few Muslims. We haven't made any significant impact on the indigenous people of this country. Why? Where are we lacking? Each and every one of us needs to introspect. We haven't done our work. We haven't spread the message of Islam. Why did North Africa become Muslim? Why did West Africa become Muslim? Why did Eastern Europe become Muslim? Because the primary concern of the Sahaba and their children was the propagation of the deen of Islam. To spread the deen of Islam. There was no ulterior motive. There was no other motive. It was purely for the sake of Allah that we need to spread the message of Islam and give people the message of success and salvation. Save them from the fire of hell and get them eternally entered into the bliss of Who's successful? That person from the fire of hell, he's entered into the bliss of Jannah, to the gardens of successful person. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give each of us the tawfiq and hidayah to understand the purpose of our existence. Our purpose in this country and our role as Muslims in this country 
and more as a minority in this country wa akhiru da'wan